Our Father, in this morning hour, we come to you grateful for our morning of worship. It's good to hear your word read, and it's good to sing. And Lord, it's good to be in a season where we are aware of our anticipation and longing for you. We're hungry, Lord. This season taps into something that gnaws at us. And we know that our hearts, which tend to pine after so many things, ultimately find our whole safety and hope in you. And I pray that this is engaged with this young woman. Um, and uh, she's, she's pursuing, uh, trying to find Bonhoeffer. She'd arrive at a concentration camp, and then he had been moved the day before. And then she'd finally get to the next one. He'd been moved the day before. The, the, she arrives the day after he is hung. I mean, it's just a really moving story. Now, well, Bonhoeffer wrote these letters from prison. Um, and for those of you who know any of this story, you know, when people write things in prison, uh, you know, people say, you know, when you're under duress, people say things at times that, you know, you need to, you need to filter it through a certain lens. Um, Karl Barth, who's one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century, um, the most important theologian of the 20th century, but just put that out there. Um, but uh, Karl Barth uh, was, didn't want uh, Bonhoeffer's secretary, Eberhard Bedke, to publish those letters. I thought you should, these should probably remain private within the family. Bedke didn't follow his advice, and they were published. And, and there's, you know, I think people can debate on whether or not that was good or not. Nevertheless, the letters have come out, and apparently one of these letters is from Bonhoeffer to his parents during the season of Advent. And he says um, to his parents in that particular letter, we're in the season of Advent, but isn't our whole life an Advent-shaped life? Isn't our whole existence as Christians, from beginning to the end, Advent-shaped? I was thinking about that this week in relation to the name of our church, actually, um, and how significant that is as a kind of iconic and linguistic representation for what it means to be a Christian. Um, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, I, I saw um, Catlin Cade with his Advent tie on this morning. He was doing the thing, uh, Frank. You didn't notice that. Cat, Catlin Cade had his tie on this morning. Just wanted you to point that out. Uh, the Advent tie. And uh, I told him he was supporting supporting the home team. Um, but when you you know when when you tell people you know that I, I go to Advent, that's the church. I mean, there's something iconic and representative of that because even the name of our church in the season that we're in is a kind of mirror representation, according to Bonhoeffer, and I think he's right here on the whole of our existence. We are in Advent. We live in a come Lord Jesus posture. We live in between the times, recognizing that, yes, what the Jews expected to happen at the end of the world actually took place in the middle of time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has come. The kingdom is here. And yet we also recognize that that kingdom has not been consummated yet. We wait for that time. We are in Advent. So the text that I wanted to do with you this morning is uh, Isaiah chapter 2. It was our reading, our lectionary reading last week, and I was kind of waiting to see if it would get preached on, and it didn't, so I'm going to go with it. Um, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let me read this to you, if you don't mind. Uh, The word which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass... In the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be raised 
above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and shall say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many nations. He shall decide between many peoples. And they shall, you'll know this, this is kind of familiar terrain here, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 is one of those Advent texts that locates our hope in the future of God's dealing with His people. Advent is a good reminder. This text is a good reminder as an Advent text that all of reality is not summed up in the contours of our current existence. I mean, it's really hard to believe this. At least it's hard for me uh, in the day-to-day quotidian prosaic routine of my life, and I'm sure your, your life as well, to believe that the sum total of exi- existence for me isn't taking place within my sphere. But it's not. There's more to reality than my own particular experience. And Isaiah 2, 1-5 through 5, points us to the latter days. Not necessarily a day when time has ceased, but a latter day. A future day of God's salvation. Now, the context here of Isaiah 2 is Isaiah chapter 1. And I, let me I'll just put it to you. I mean, Isaiah 1 is not a warm and fuzzy uh, text. It's, you know, it's not a Linus and Charlie Brown text. Uh, let me just read you the first few verses, let you know what the book of Isaiah is about, so you can enter advisedly if you want to read this book. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And if there's a key theological word in the whole book of Isaiah, it's that particular word right there, rebellion. It begins the book of Isaiah, and the last verse of Isaiah in chapter 66 raises the question, will you walk in the path of rebellion or not? So it's like envelopes here at the beginning of Isaiah and at the end of Isaiah talking about rebellion. And listen to the illustration that Isaiah gives to illustrate Their rebellion. Verse 3. The ox knows its owner. And the ass, or the donkey, its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people does not understand. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. This is a seatbelt on text, by the way. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. It doesn't get, there's no lower blow than that to a Jew. Um, I mean, here is the, here are the leaders of Judah, the southern kingdom being referred to, predicated on. I mean, well, it doesn't get worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a kind of byword for as bad as things get. In the book of Ezekiel, Sodom and Gomorrah, metaphorically speaking, look on in the actions of Judah, the southern kingdom, and they blush because of what the southern kingdom is doing, because of what Judah is doing. And what's going on here? Sin, rebellion, the forfeiture of the covenant, coming destruction, the whole earth in Isaiah chapter 1 is called on to observe the horrors of Israel's rebellion. 
To put a point on the matter, Isaiah here in chapter 1, verse 10, refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah and goes after them because they will not hear. They're not listening. Now, I've said this here in other contexts, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Within the Reformation, or Reformed thought, at least the magisterial reformers of the 16th century, they tended to emphasize the metaphor of hearing more than seeing. Because hearing is more passive and receptive than seeing is. Hear the word of the Lord, we hear as we come to church. Oswald Beyer, one of the better Luther scholars of the day, says this, The human being can only be considered a person who listens. Is only a human being when he or she is completely an ear. The human being is thus human in that he or she is addressed. End quote. And I think Paul would give a hearty amen to that, wouldn't he? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And thus Jesus also speaks of our confidence in the efficacy of the Word of God alongside the call to be truly human, to be listening agents. We come to hear. And Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 was no longer hearing They were no longer listening. Their ears had been shut up. They were in rebellion. I've got a child who will go nameless this morning. Maybe I should put that children who will go nameless this morning, who have a tendency to put his his fingers into his ears when he doesn't like what he is hearing from me. Well, this is what's going on in Isaiah chapter 1. The whole nation from the leaders downward are putting their fingers in their ears and they're saying, no more. We'll hear no more of this. Yeah, just to kind of illustrate this, remember, I mean, here's Nebuchadnezzar coming to lay siege on the southern kingdom with, with Jeremiah. And Zedekiah, the king at the time, says, Jeremiah, give us a word from the Lord. And Jeremiah says, okay, I'll give you a word from the Lord. Uh, surrender. Right. <laughs> There's the word from Surrender. And uh, what does Zedekiah do? I don't like that. He puts his fingers in his ears, throws Jeremiah into prison, and the city is is sieged. So, verse 29, For you shall be ashamed, chapter 1, of the oaks in which you delighted. This is probably a reference to some kind of syncretistic worshiping practice. You're going to be ashamed of those oaks in which you delighted. You shall blush for the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. I mean, do you hear these kind of images that, I mean, those of you who spent some time in the Old Testament, these will register for you. How blessed is the one who delights, Psalm 1, in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a what? A tree that's planted by the rivers of water. His fruit shall bear its fruit in its season. Whatever he does, it's going to prosper. That's, that's the promise of the person who listens and submits to the word of the Lord for the shaping and the construction of their own lives. And here we have at the end of chapter 1 of Isaiah the actual opposite, the antipode of that reality. You're not a strong oak tree by the side of a river. You're a withering oak whose leaves are dying. And Isaiah chapter 2 goes on to put a point on the matter. And I will come in, says Yahweh as the great tree feller, and cut you down so that you will not be a tree anymore. So what makes Isaiah chapter 11, what we heard this morning um, in, in worship together, so poignant out of that cut-down stump comes a little sprig of life uh, with the root of Jesse that comes forth. So this is the scene. 
Isaiah chapter 1 is a good Friday. Can I put it in our Christian sort of liturgical framework? Isaiah 1 is a good Friday uh, lection. Isaiah 1 is you're bad, right? Um, you're rebellious. Your character, if you look into the mirror, is an ox that does not know its master. But Isaiah chapter 2 comes right on the heels of that. And what is Isaiah chapter 2? Isaiah chapter 2 is Advent. Or to put it another way, it's Easter. It's from Good Friday to Easter. It displays for us in the very way in which the book of Isaiah is put together canonically the character of our God. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again, and I'm borrowing here from Robert Jensen, but this is the character of God on display. God is doing what God does. He's taking things that are dead and He's breathing new life into them. He's taking Israel in the death of her slavery in in Egypt and breathing life into Israel. What was a foregone conclusion, a fait accompli, is no longer the case. Israel's alive again and in a land. We come to the coldness of the tomb on Holy Saturday and we see that rock over the place where it should not be with that body on the other side that should not be there. And what do we see on Easter Sunday? We see the character of God. We see Isaiah 1 yield to Isaiah chapter 2. And he comes forth in new life. It's the character of God. And it's why this Isaiah text is such a bona fide Advent text. It's a text that locates us, locates you and me in the complexity of our own situation. It will not let us off the hook of a real lived life. Fractured lives. Broken relationships. A fractured church. Fractured political mechanisms. And the ravages of our own rebellion. Yet it moves us tyrannically to the hope of the gospel. A hope that is grounded in the future promises of God to be a Savior, both for His people and for the entirety of the world. In latter days, the prophet says, the mountain of the Lord shall be raised and exalted as the highest of mountains. The house of the Lord here is a reference for sure to the temple. This is temple theology at work. As Mount Zion, a metaphoric term for the temple mount, is raised and exalted. It's got a kind of, I don't know, kind of Tolkien feel to it. It's got a kind of a Lord of the Rings thing going on where here you have this mountain just begins to explode from, from the ground and as, as it raises above all other mountains. The imagery of the raised mountain or of the mountain in general, frankly, is one that touches at the heart of the religious imagination of the Old Testament. The mountain is the place where heaven and earth meet. Sky and land are brought close together on the mountain. You see, it's not an accident that many, if not most, encounters with God in the Old Testament take place on a mountain, Mount Sinai. Where did the transfiguration take place? On a mountain. So the temple is this sort of mountainous place where heaven and earth meet. And the temple really is a sacramental physical presence of heaven on earth. It is life, if I can turn the requiem line, it is life in the midst of death. God is dwelling among His people. The Garden of Eden still exists in the presence of the Lord. 
So the importance of the temple cannot be overestimated. And here we see the temple on that final day, on that latter day, being raised up as the nation streamed to it. Now the church fathers, and I like these fellas, right? Um, Augustine, Athanasius, um, Gregory of Nazianzus, these, these household names. Um, the church fathers would have had a field day with a text like this. Matter of fact, let me would have. They did have a field day with a text like this. And this is properly so, I believe. Because Jesus is unreservedly identified, or he unreservedly identifies himself with the physical temple. Tear this thing down. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And they laughed Jesus off the scene because they said, doesn't he know how long it took to build this temple? And then the Gospelers give us a great little commentary right there. But they did not know that he was talking about himself. Jesus, the Logos, tabernacles. He temples among us. Jesus is the temple of the Lord. He is the presence of God amidst His people. And His resurrection is an exaltation of the proportions that we read about here in Isaiah. And as we expect with most things that are pertaining to the kingdom of God, we are left in a real tension between the full truth of Jesus' exaltation and the raising of God's true temple and the fact that what we read about here has not happened in full yet. You watched the news last night, didn't you? So verses 2 through 3 say that the nations stream to this mountain. Why do they stream? I kind of like this, given my vocational call. They come to be taught. They come to be instructed. They come to learn from the Word of the Lord. But this is where the analogy breaks down. From the Lord Himself. Yahweh, the great teacher. By the way, I think we get some indications of this kind of activity even in Jesus' ministry post the resurrection. What does Jesus do with, on the road to Emmaus when He sits with His disciples in Luke 24 and explains to them the significance of the events that have occurred in that day? Do you know what Jesus does? He has a Bible study with them. Jesus, Yahweh in flesh, is instructing His disciples in His own Word. That's a kind of foretaste of what this future day will be like. I've got good news for you who really like Bible study stuff. I know some of you are kind of Bible study junkies around here. I've got good news for you. That's not going to stop when we get to heaven. That's not going to stop in the new heavens and the new earth. We will always be learning in the new heavens and the new earth. Always. I mean, we don't become God, right? We don't become God. We participate in the life of God. We don't become God. We will not have an infinite mind like God in the new heavens and new earth. We will, we will be sinless. That will be great. But we will always be in a position to learn forever and forever. That's, well, some of you say, that stinks, right? Because here my boy's going, crap. It's like, it's like, I don't want to go to heaven for that. I mean, it's like, is there basketball hoops there or what? But, but for, for those of you, you know, you, this, is, this is, for many of you, this is good news. Good news for me. What's the result of this going and learning the law, being, instru- being instructed from God Himself about His plan for the world and His ways. The result, verse 4, universal peace. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide for the peoples. 
They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Um, I, I, I like... Uh, let me expose myself here. I like these sort of PBS Christmas specials. Um, to a point, like... I watched one a few years back with Andrea Bocelli. Did you see this? Come on, get to say. I know you're, you're, you watch this thing. And um, so Bocelli's out there and he's singing with his sort of beautiful Italian tenor and, and uh, some uh, very attractive blonde uh, mezzo soprano from England. Catherine Jenkins is her name. She comes out and, and, and they begin to sing this song and the choir's behind them. I, 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 I memorize some of the lyrics. Um, the lyrics go, I believe, I mean, it's just beautiful. I mean, this, their voice is harmonizing. And the, the sort of l- l- lilting libretto. Um, I believe in the, in the people of all nations coming together. And I believe, and, and I just didn't go, well, you know, I'm kind of caught up in that, maybe a little misty-eyed. And then, it, you know, but then my, my critical analytical side comes in. I'm like, that's just absurd. It's just absurd. I mean, I'm, I think I'm convinced that the night before Ebenezer Scrooge decided to turn sour on Christmas, that he probably saw one of those Christmas concerts and said, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> you know the line from our liturgy. You know our words from morning prayer and the suffrages. Only in thee can we live in safety. The hope of universal peace is certainly the right desire and it's something to be striven after in this world. We're called to it. I don't want to get overly heady here, but we live in these tensions between an overrealized eschatology and an underrealized eschatology. Can I I'll parse that out? An overrealized one would say the kingdom of God is here, and there's nothing else that needs we need to be waiting on. Well, that's certainly not true. But we also run in the danger of an underrealized eschatology that doesn't take into account the fact that Jesus has come. And He has come to make a difference now in this world. And we are to strive after that. And while I was doing some preparation on this particular um, talk here in Isaiah 2, I turned on some speeches on YouTube by Martin Luther King. You know, because his, his sermons and his speeches dripped with the imagery that are borrowed from the prophets. I, dream a dream, I, I have a dream. Amos, he quotes Amos toward the end, let justice roll down. Like a mighty stream. Wow, I just love that. Um, I think he, uh, on the night before he died in his On the Mountain speech, uh, quoted Isaiah chapter 2 or Micah 4, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And Martin Luther King's dream, as I've reflected on this, has come to fruition in so many ways. And he mentions Birmingham, Alabama in that speech. I think about this with my own three boys, as I imagine yours as well. Um, they have a hard time. My children have a hard time thinking in terms specifically defined by race. That's surely a foretaste of the heavenly kingdom, of the raised mountain. And it's something that's worth striving for. And I kind of feel silly saying this because it's so painfully obvious. But still, I mean, let us not think that all is well. Race and prejudice are still alive and well and will be as long as the human heart is sinful. As long as my heart is sinful. Only in Thee do we live in safety. 
Only in the latter days, when the sins of this world are a faint memory of a bygone day, only then will swords be once and for all beat into plowshares. Work hard at it now. But in the sure and certain hope that in the future it will come to its ultimate fruition. Spears become pruning hooks. With the result, as we read in Micah's rendition of the same passage, that all will sit in their own house and drink of their own wine. Beautiful scene. That's what we wait for. The latter day when a man or a woman picks up a spear or a sword or some violent weapon devised primarily for the killing of other human beings and goes, what's this strange contraption for? Only in thee do we live in safety. Advent forces us into this dual reality that Jesus has come and that His kingdom has not arrived in its fullness yet. All right, my final thoughts. There's a word in this text that sticks out to me. And it's a kind of Adventy word. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It's an imperative. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Come. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Or I'll read it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And this whole scene ends in verse 5, which is a comment on this apocalyptic vision of the future. 2.5 says this, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the final call of the whole scene. Because this future hope is true, Because in time, God will make good on His promises and exalt His temple. Because if I can put it in Christian confessional terms, because we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Because this is true, then come, says the prophet, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. I kid you not, I had this in my notes for this morning. I didn't know Andrew was going to refer to it in this sermon, but... It's not like that bumper sticker. Jesus is coming, so look busy. I didn't know he was going to do that. The strange providence of God around bumper stickers. This isn't a call this morning to frenetic activity to appease an angry God. This is a call from Isaiah to be. And this is a call to walk in light of the fullness of what will be. And in the proper sense of what already is. Paul says in Colossians, set your affections on things that are above. Advent's this kind of season for you. And it's this kind of season for me. A season that taps into this again and again nature of the gospel to do its transformative work in our lives and in Christ's church. This future reality of God triumphs. His triumph liberates you and me. To walk in the light of who we already are in Him. Advent reminds us that we can come and walk in the light of the Lord only as we come and adore Him. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let us pray. Seal these things, O Lord, in our hearts. Set them in our affections and our will and our mind. And during this season of Advent, give us all the space and the time we need, Lord, 
to reflect, to pray, and to hunger for you. Let that temple, O Lord, be established. We yearn for the nations in toto to stream to you, O Lord, to be taught your truth and your way so that we may live in peace to the worship and the glory and the honor of your name. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.